Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to Twenty Heights. Um, Julia, my Julia, is sorry she can't be here this morning, but she went down with uh, something or other this week. It wasn't COVID, so that, that's good, but she has been left with a cough, which is what always happens to her when she gets a heavy cold. Uh, but she didn't want to come and freak everyone out by coughing her lungs out of the bat there, so uh, she's, she's not here this morning. Um, so for those of you who've, who've been with us, let me just quickly recap where we are. We're in a series called Colossians, Violence, Progress, and Peace. And what we said so far is that Paul, in the first three weeks, we saw how Paul is calling us to a life of grace and a life of peace, a life of sacrifice and a life of fruitfulness. Grace and peace, sacrifice and fruitfulness. But then we got to week four and we said that Paul is not the kind of person who wants to tell people, this is how you should live, these are the values you should have, but without telling us the story within which those kinds of values would make some kind of sense. Right, so he's, he wants to tell us a compelling narrative out of which a particular way of life would just naturally flow. And so we said last week that there are three strands to this narrative that he, we're going to read again in Colossians. And there, he's developing a theology of providence, a theology of creation, and a theology of humanity. Creation, providen providence, creation, and humanity. Last week we looked at providence. This week we're going to look at Paul's theology of creation. Um, so if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to read again from that passage in chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So if you've been at Trinity Heights for any length of time, you know that I like to ask some very silly and obvious questions from the front. Uh, one question that I asked two or three times a year from the front, and I asked it last week actually, was what is progress? You know, everyone knows what progress is, but I like to ask anyway. Uh, another question that I bring up uh, over and over again, even more than that actually, uh, is the question, what does it mean to be? Some of you can finish that sentence for me. What does it mean to be? Human, yeah, fully human, exactly. So some of you know that I ask this question all the time. What does it mean to be human? Again, the answers to these questions are so blindingly obvious that they don't really seem worth asking, but I keep on asking them anyway. So this morning, I'd like to add another question to our list of silly questions. So along with what does it mean to be human and what is progress, I would like to add the question this morning, wait for it, drum roll, what is violence? What is violence? What kind of question is that? What is violence? Violence is a very important concept and a very important word in our vocabulary, increasingly so in our society. You may have noticed that violence is, is increasingly sort of used and applied in numerous different areas of life where there is actually no physical or bodily, direct bodily harm involved. Um, so, for example, one author points out that gentrification is violence, cultural appropriation is violence, 
Charter schools have been labeled a form of violence. Various kinds of speech have also been considered in and of themselves violence. Nonviolent action has always been violent, says a writer of everyday feminism. An article about British youth soccer clubs in the sociology of sport journals cites the coaches' profane hectoring of players and says that it could be argued that the violence apparent in the coaches' discourse was as much real as symbolic in a verbal sense. I'm not sure I follow, but uh, reading the Bible badly is also to do violence to the biblical text and so on and so forth. Of course, usages of words are going to vary from time and place, um, and there's always going to be those fuzzy cases in the margins where we're not exactly sure, does this actually fit the definition? Does this fit the definition or not? We're, we're not sure. But the danger of stretching the meaning of a word too thinly in this way uh, is that, of course, it can start to lose its power to communicate. Um, and so we can multiply meanings to the point where it could mean any number of things, and we're not entirely sure what it is we're discussing and, and talking about. Uh, that can happen. And so the problem with a word like violence, where so many violent acts are truly horrifying, there's an argument to be made that we might want to retain the power of a word that can communicate and convey that horror. And so some might argue, therefore, that it's, there's some practical value in, in sort of narrowing the use of that word violence. Well, actually, I could argue it either way, to be honest. But regardless of whether the word is being applied and the concept is being applied very broadly or the concept of violence is being applied very narrowly, uh, the fact is that it is being used to highlight a numerous different kind of in, various different kinds of injustice in our world. And so regardless of whether you think we should apply this broadly or whether we should reserve it for very narrow specific cases, right, uh, the, the fact is we all have a stake in making sure that this word and this concept of violence retains some sort of meaning and power behind it. Um, and so when I ask the question, what is violence? My aim is not to adjudicate this morning whether we think we should use it broadly or more narrowly. That's up to you. You argue amongst yourselves. Just don't get violent. Uh, but my aim is to help us explore under what conditions that this word or this concept of violence uh, can possess or retain um, the meaning we think it has. Let me tell you, I want to explore under what conditions the word violence, the concept of violence, can possess and retain the meaning we think it has. Or, or let me put this a bit more bluntly, I, I, I essentially want to explore whether such a thing as violence actually exists. And no, coming and punching me is not actually going to answer the, the question. Um, so I want to start with Paul's words. Paul says this, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Paul is talking about creation here and the creator. He's developing a theology of creation in these verses. And so what I want to do first of all is to try and explore what does Paul mean when he's talking about the creator and creation? And then once we've explored a little bit of Paul's theology of creation, what he means by that, I want to then circle back around to this theme of violence. And so I promise that towards the end, we will bring this, both these themes of violence and creation, creation and violence together, okay? 
Um, so let's start with Paul's theology of creation. You know, when, when we're attempting to establish the fundamentals of the natural world, today's sciences tend to focus particularly on the sort of origins and beginnings of things. So, so for example, you know, if, um, if we can just, the cosmologists can wind back the clock to those first moments after the Big Bang, uh, we, we can mathematically consider the physical conditions of the universe, just those in those first few instants, those first few moments. Or, or biologists will try to understand billions of years of, of uh, evolutionary bio, biology um, and by, by going back to the origin of the species. And the idea is if we can go back to the beginning, back to the origins, to that fluctuation in the quantum vacuum, to the first stirrings in the primordial soup, the first stirrings of life, then you know, we, we will unlock the mystery and, and the meaning of existence. So uh, scientifically speaking, it's all very uh, exciting. Trouble is when people like you and I come across a passage like this, where Paul is talking about creation and the creator, um, given our context and, and the particular set of scientific questions that, that people like us have, uh, this conversation that, that Paul is developing here in verse 16 and onwards uh, tends to get absorbed, it tends to get absorbed into this conversation of origins and beginnings. And so uh, Paul says in verse 17, he says, he is before all things. He is before all things. And what happens is we read that and we go, oh, well, he's interested in what, you know, the order of, you know, what came first. He's interested in chronology. Right, the origins, beginnings. That's what Paul's talking about here. We, we just do this automatically because this is, you know, we're, we're children of the scientific age and, and, and that's how we, we've been trained to read. So you end up hearing conversations between Christians on one hand and maybe atheists on the other saying, well, is it a force like gravity working on a quantum foam or is it God? Is, is there a fluctuation in the quantum vacuum? Or was there a divine mechanic, an intelligent designer, a superintelligence, a first cause? Uh, what, what do we find if we were to work out the physics of the universe as a very long, very, very long physics equation worked backwards? Do we find God at the beginning of that physics equation or not, as, as the case may be? And, and so you see how very quickly, the context in which we live starts to shape the way we read words like this. He is before all things. Um, you may have also noticed that there's been this sort of slippage or, or sort of subtle shift in, in another term here. So even as our scientific age starts to shape the way we talk about the act of creation and creation itself, I've also started talking about God in a very particular way, right? Uh, you may have noticed I, I've started talking about God as sort of a superintelligence or an intelligent designer, the divine mechanic, the first cause in a long chain of causation, the answer to a physics equation. Uh, and, and so before we know it, before we know it, um, this context in which we live is not only shaping the way we talk about creation, but it's actually shaping the way we talk about the creator, the way we use the word God. Oh, Stephen, are we going to quibble over the, 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 over the words, over the word of God? I'm not particularly interested in the finer points of theology. Well, I have to say, I'm not sure that the meaning of the word God is one of the finer points of theology. It is actually what the theology is all about. Uh, and, and if you happen to have an interest in reading your Bible, some of you will, um, uh, you may have noticed that the word God 
appears in the Bible a few, few times. I've, I've not counted that myself, but the, con, uh, the Strong's Concordance says that it appears about 4,473 times in the Bible. I will take their word for it. Um, so we might want to make sure that when we read that word 4,473 times, as it's translated in our English translations, God, we might want to make sure that we're reading that, uh, reading that correctly. And so I, just, I want us to feel the, sort of the, the weight of how this works out practically in our lives, in the life of the church. One of the things the church does is call people, whether you're outside the church or in the church, but we call people, come and dedicate your life to God. We invite people to commit themselves, their entire being, to God. We say give, we want people to give themselves more and more to God. But listen to how that invitation might sound. Dedicate yourself to the intelligent designer. Give yourself wholeheartedly to the divine mechanic. Commit yourself to the first cause in the long chain of causation. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound very appealing or inviting to me. I'm not sure I want to dedicate my life to the superintelligence or the divine mechanic. I'm not sure I want to give my life to the first cause or the answer to a very long physics equation works backwards. I'm not sure that I want to do that. I'm not sure that we should do that. But just stop and think for a moment. If this is conceptually, and by the way, this is conceptually how the argument works out between atheists on one side, Christians on the other. This is the discussion. We chase each other's tails around this kind of language. So just think for a moment, think for a moment about how that will affect your posture towards God over the long haul. Over the long haul as life happens to you. Think about what that does to your heart, the attitude of your heart towards God. Just think for a moment about what that might do to us if we want a relationship with God. How will that affect our affection towards God. The interesting thing is that Paul wouldn't recognize this kind of language. This may be how the debate goes on in our context, but Paul wouldn't recognize this language. Listen again to what Paul says. He says, for in him all things were created. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Paul says something very similar in Ephesians. He says, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, he fills everything in every way. Paul is talking about the creator in creation, but, he, but he's not talking about it in terms of beginnings and the origins of things. He, he's talking about it in, in terms of an ongoing relationship. 
so Paul is not talking about God the divine mechanic, God the intelligent designer or superintelligence, God the first cause in the long chain of causation, but he's talking about God as the ground of all being right now, in this present moment. Uh, so when he says he is before all things in verse 17, of course, he is definitely asserting the primacy of God. He is before all things. He's asserting the primacy of God, but not in chronological terms, but in relational terms. Let me say that again. In verse 17, when he says he is before all things, he is asserting the primacy of God, but not in chronological terms, but in relational terms. He's saying God is the ground of our existence at every single moment. So he's saying, look, this is, this is how the creation and creator relate to each other. Let, let me put this in another way. Um, when God creates, there are now not two different existences independent of each other. There's just one existence. There's God's existence. And we participate in that existence. All things are created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I hope you can hear that in before, all, he's before all things, not just chronologically, but, but the relational dimension that Paul is asserting here. He's over all and through all and in all, and he fills everything in every way. Okay, I promised that we would bring this together with our earlier conversation about violence, so let's bring this concept of violence and uh, creation uh, together. If we remove this relationship between creator and creation and we water it down by talking about creation just in merely chronological terms, not relational terms, the world is no longer ordered to anything. It's no longer ordered to God's existence, to the creator. And so we have a problem. Because if nothing is ordered to anything, then it is impossible to do violence to anything. If nothing is ordered to anything, then it is impossible to do violence to anything because violence is the violation of a presumed order. Uh, so this doesn't remain too abstract. Let, let, me, let me give you some, uh, an illustration here. Um, this is uh, a photo of Michelangelo's Piazza, or the Pity. It's the Renaissance masterpiece, which portrays the Madonna holding the dead body of Jesus after he was taken down from the cross. The statue is a picture of the results of Roman violence. He made the statue when he was just 23 years old, and it's the only piece that Michelangelo ever signed. It's in St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City. Um, and there was some really substantial damage done to it uh, that occurred on the 21st of May, 1972. It was Pentecost Sunday, when a mentally disturbed geologist, the Hungarian-born Australian, Laszlo Toff, walked into the chapel and attacked the sculpture with a geologist's hammer while shouting, I am Jesus Christ, I have risen from the dead, with 15 blows. So he was up there quite a while, hammering away at it, I mean, before he was pulled. 15 blows, he removed Mary's arm at the elbow, knocked off a chunk of her nose, chipped off one of her eyelids. Um, Bob Cassley, an American sculptor and artist from St. Louis, Missouri, was one of the first people to remove Toth from the Piata. He says, I leapt up and grabbed the guy by the beard. Uh, we both fell into the crowd of screaming Italians. It was something of a scene. 
Onlookers took many of the pieces of marble. Uh, later, some of the pieces were returned, but many were not, including uh, Mary's nose. So somewhere out there, someone's got a piece of uh, Michelangelo's Mary's nose, uh, which had to be reconstructed from a, a block taken out of her, her back. Now we look at that and we immediately see an act of violence. And we see what Laszlo Toth did as an act of violence, not, not simply because this came, uh, this statue comes out of the mind of uh, an intelligent sculptor, okay? We'll come up, forget about Michelangelo for the moment. Forget about the origins and the beginnings of things, okay? It's not because it comes out of the mind of an intelligent sculptor, but because this statue is ordered to, it's ordered to the human being, to the human form, a human body, human bodies and human faces, a human relationship, human suffering, a human experience. Humanity is, in a sense, the ground of this statue. This statue is ordered to the human being. And so, of course, when Lazo Toth does what he does, we look at that and go, yes, immediately, that's an act of violence. But imagine if it was just a lump of marble a lump of marble sitting in a quarry, or maybe just a lump of marble sitting in the artist's, the sculptor's studio. And he takes a chisel in one hand and a hammer in the other, and he starts to knock away and bits of marble fly off. We don't go, oh, that's an act of violence. Uh, and of course we don't, because it's just a lump of marble. It's not ordered to anything. Violence, whether against a marble statue or violence against Jesus that ends with Mary cradling her son's dead body in her lap, is all predicated on the idea that the world itself is ordered to something. And violence is a violation of that sacred order. If nothing is ordered to anything, then it is impossible to do violence to anything. But Paul says... Our existence is ordered to God's existence. He is before all things. Again, I hope you can hear those words now, not just in chronological terms, but in relational terms. He is before all things. Paul is telling the story, which gives the ultimate weight, not only to the meaning, not only to the concept of violence, which has been a very important concept as we've been going through this series, right? But also, more importantly, to peace. Peace, the far-reaching harmony that can permeate all relationships when creation and humanity are reconciled and ordered to the Creator.